Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. As the S&P 500 breaks through its all-time high set two years ago, the market is taking the view that inflation has been tamed and that rates can fall while economic growth and employment can remain intact. And that even if the world's largest economy doesn't quite stick the perfect landing, the Fed has the wiggle room to prevent a hard landing. I'm Alison Savas, and in this episode, I'm joined by Antipodes CIO, Jacob Mitchell. We're going to discuss whether the worst case scenario has been averted and what we're watching in markets in 2024. We'll also cover how the Antipodes portfolios are positioned, including shining a spotlight on one of our key holdings, Oracle. Jacob, Happy New Year. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Alison. It's uh, great to be here. So I covered the market's view in the intro, and while enthusiasm around the rate-cutting cycle has tempered a little, as the Fed's tone has recently earned a little more hawkish, I think it's fair to say that the market believes the Fed can achieve the soft landing. You know, and look, the, the US economy has remained resilient. So can the Fed pull it off? Can the Fed pull off the perfect landing? Look, they, they may be able to, but you know, we still see risks, residual risks around, you know, the inflation war and lagged ramifications of tight monetary policy. Uh, bonds and equities you know, celebrated the, the recent 3% headline inflation print. But it is worth remembering that core inflation, which is what the Fed um, focuses on, came in at about 4%. You know, the market assumes core inflation can fall to around 25 by the end of 2024. But we see getting, you know, potentially stuck around 3% at the, at the mid-year mark, you know, really due to the shelter component just being a little bit sticky. And also, look, the, the wild card is geopolitics, you know, given what we're seeing in the Middle East and the potential impact on energy prices and supply chains and, uh, and also just that longer term structural trend uh, towards onshoring. So, look. Just going back to the shelter component, which is basically uh, rents um, and uh, owner-occupier equivalent rent, it's worth paying attention to this as it accounts for over you know 40% of core inflation. Rents are still rising more than 6% year on year, and that upward pressure is coming from, um, look, we think factors related to the, the structural undersupply in U.S. housing. And it's not, it's not just U.S. housing. We see this in a lot of the Western housing markets. You know, the, the lackluster recovery post the, you know, the, the global financial crisis um, just led to a, you know, a, a, a structural undersupply. And, um, you know, it's taken us a long time to get back to just sort of, let's call it, um, the, the sustainable uh, growth rate of housing. So, uh, and we haven't gone above trend. So that means we still have to make up that underbuild. And that can, that can persist and that, that doesn't get easier with higher rates, that gets harder. Um, and, uh, and that's going to keep feeding into core CPI. So what you're saying is that the trajectory for core inflation is down, but you have, but you have a more conservative view on where it may settle and that it may settle at a rate that is higher than what the Fed is comfortable with. So the question is what that means for the pace of loosening, because the market is pricing in 140 basis points of rate cuts over 2024. And so that's around six rate cuts. And six rate cuts is what you'd expect to fight off a recession as opposed to a resilient economy with above target inflation. 
Yeah, look, that's right. I mean, everything around COVID has been somewhat exceptional. Um, and uh, look, we, I mean, what, what we can say, I think we can say fairly safely is that we're at the peak of the tightening cycle and we will see some rate cuts over the coming year. Um, in the back of the Fed's mind, though, they, they will be, I think, probably err on the side of caution. Uh, given the the persistence of of certain elements in in the inflation deck, um, and so look, we we think there'll be some disappointment over the pace of of loosening, and ultimately rates will will stay you know higher for longer. And look on the the economy, the U.S. economy, it's been remarkably resilient. The you know the, the, there's a lot of discussion around the delayed impact of tightening the transmission to the real economy and potentially that that um, that has lengthened we know you know we all we know that fixed rate mortgages the US has the um, you know unique uh, situation in, in globally in terms of being able to the household can really lock in a, a low rate for a very long period of time and that's supported the economy um, so the, the labour market, we can see it loosening. Uh, nominal wage growth is slowing. You know, there's new leading indicators on the economy, like new orders, are also weakening. And you know, we are so we are going to have some slowdown in the economy. Um, and U.S. equities are priced on you know this 20 times forward earnings, uh, which. As we know, we're also in a market where there's a lot of multiple dispersion around that 20 times. And, you know, the, the, the Magnificent Seven or Terrific Ten uh, are on much higher, are on an average multiple that's a lot higher than that. Uh, and then the rest of the market is, is lower. So, look, there's opportunities, but at the index level, um, we would argue, broadly speaking, there's, there's not a lot of slowdown priced into US equities. Mm. And and as we look towards 2024, a topic that we've been talking about is the potential for deterioration in liquidity, given the funding requirements for this very large US fiscal deficit. And we've been talking about risks around the bond market sucking up capital as the Treasury looks to term out its debt. And that sounds like that could also be a headwind for US equities at at the index level. Look, I, I think so. I mean, the the U.S. deficit is now six percent of GDP. Now it's it's not expanding anymore. So you could argue the the positive impact of the of the expanding deficit is behind us, but we still have to fund a, a you know a, a relatively high level of of borrowing. And as it turned out in twenty twenty three, we almost had the you know the Goldilocks scenario of having the the benefits of of the deficit coming in in terms of activity, but no real cost in terms of the funding, given that most of the new debt was being issued at the very short end. So a lot of we almost saw a um, in terms of the incremental funding of a deficit, it was almost a record year of um, of, of of maximum use of short dated paper uh, bills. And the minimum minimum use of longer dated, you know, bonds, you know, bonds with a duration greater than one year. Um, and um, now the stock of those, let's call it the bills, which have to get rolled, you know, every 
every other month. Uh, that is now at about 20% of total debt outstanding. And that's at the upper limit of the, you know, where the treasury is, is sort of seems to be comfortable. So at some point, the treasury has to start to term out um, the debt. They'll have to do more of the incremental borrowing. We'll have to come in longer dated bonds. And look, that the question is, you know, who who can buy that? And that's that's where it gets interesting because the short dated paper can be, you know, money market funds where a lot of the excess liquidity um, has been parked. They can buy, you know, these bills, but they can't buy, you know, they tend to, they can't buy, they certainly can't buy bonds. Like, you know, once you go out beyond a year, their ability to participate um, drops away. And so, you know, it's going to be more traditional buyers. Now, the the question there, and they are insurance companies, they're banks. Um, The question there is you're not getting a lot of, um, you're not getting a lot of compensation for taking duration risk. And that's that's what bond investors describe that as like term structure. The fact that the yield curve is is negative means you're not getting um, you're not getting that traditional benefit for taking you know longer you know duration risk. And that's we think is one of the key issues for the bond market for the liquidity situation. Um, and uh, you know how that how that sort of let's call it rectifies itself. I think it's by the you know longer the long end of the yield curve, the 10-year yield will probably have to stay relatively elevated versus, you know, a Fed, uh, what the Fed may be able to do in terms of the policy rate, in terms of rate cuts. So they, 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 see, they need to engineer not only a soft landing, but they also need to engineer some upward sloping yield curve, we think, in order to get the, the, the fiscal deficit funded in an orderly manner. Um, and as we know, in 2023, you know, there, there were, you know, there were these, you know, episodic, uh, you know, volatility, um, you know, episodes of volatility in the bond market, which were, which fed back into, um, you know, the price asset, you know, risk asset prices more generally. Um, um, look, probably the other issue that we're focused on uh, is just the 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 amount of the size of the the leverage the growth in the leverage loan market um, the, the and the high yield bond market uh, although it's been leveraged loans and private credit where most of most of the growth has taken place uh, leverage loan market alone is about 1.25 trillion outstanding and over half of that is held or or used to essentially finance private equity backed companies. And most of that is floating rate, and uh, and not a lot is hedged, and that cost has risen. The cost of that debt um, is risen from roughly, let's call it, at the lows around four percent to now roughly ten percent, and we calculate calculate a very you know, the statistic that we think is really telling is the the median interest rate burden of these companies uh, is around forty percent of their EBITDA. But the poorer quality companies are as high as 90% of EBITDA. So that's, that's quite unmanageable if rates remain higher for longer. And that debt will need to be refinanced in the next three to five years. So there is the risk that if the Fed can't sort of can't cut fast enough, that the rate of defaults or if the economy is softer than uh, investors expect, 
that defaults start to bleed into the broader economy. Um, we calculate that private equity employs roughly 7% of the total workforce. So it needs to be something to, to be monitored, you know, quite, quite closely. So to draw a circle around all of this, what you're saying is that at the headline 20 times forward earnings, US equities are not factoring in the potential for a slowdown in activity from the lagged impact of tight monetary policy or the potential for tightening liquidity. And we have the risks that you've just mentioned around PE-backed businesses. So the index is expensive, but opportunities still exist at the individual stock level. And that highlights the importance of paying you know, the right price or a fair price for the quality of a company and its growth profile and not paying any price. And so I think that's a, a good segue into, into our portfolio. We still have a relatively defensive tilt. So can you take us through our current positioning? Sure. Um, look, a couple of months ago, we, we did take the view that we could see a rally fueled by, you know, expectations around central bank policy um, in the face of declining inflation. So we, we tactically increased our exposure to equities, you know, particularly in the long short strategy where our net invested position, you know, we moved it to one of the highest since the inception of the, of the strategy. Now, we're comfortable with that positioning for now, but it hasn't really changed our broader view that we expect to see greater volatility around the, both the economic and the policy cycle and ultimately lower equity multiples. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, the, the portfolio retains its, you know, this sort of defensive tilt, but we have selectively added to some of the global cyclicals where um, we see the supply and demand uh, dynamic as being uh, attractive, you know, where, you know, for instance, you're, you're seeing, seeing a bottoming of the cycle. Uh, the industrial production cycle has been very weak because it was mainly correlated to that really large slowdown in manufacturing as consumers pivoted away from goods and back to services coming, you know, coming out of COVID. So that, that has washed through the you know, global trade, goods trade has been you know, very weak. Um, and as we know, China hasn't, hasn't really done a lot to offset the big slowdown in their pro- property sector. So you have seen a destocking cycle in things as you know, parts of the market like you know, global chemicals, some of the um, industrial exposed um, hardware, um, hardware names, even oil and gas has been, you know, oil prices come back. Um, and you know, and that's that's given us opportunities to start to to build some cyclicality into the portfolio. Now, the the next stage will be whether or not we see, um, you know, if the data is remains resilient, and we think the inflation is coming, you know, coming sort of dovish in a, in a more dovish manner, and the Fed can start to accelerate rate cuts. There is an opportunity to, you know, to ramp up that cyclical exposure, uh, and we'd be looking to also build into that, you know, some of the exposure to the, you know, the the, the major longer term trends, whether it's the energy transition or supply chain onshoring, uh, and um, also just the dynamic of, you know, finding many of the multinationals, you know, companies like uh, Siemens or Saint Gabain that have a decent exposure to the US. 
coming at a lower multiple than let's call it you know the the equivalent company um, in the US and we think that valuation arbitrage you know can close uh, and it's a great way to play you know the soft landing in the US at antivities we talk a lot about the importance of finding tomorrow's winners rather than focusing on yesterday's success stories and that includes looking for those mispriced beneficiaries of investment cycles that are going to dominate over the next decade and beyond. And you, know, you just called out energy transition and, and supply chain onshoring, but we also have cloud and AI. Oracle and SAP, SAP are two of the leading enterprise resource planning software providers, or ERP for short. Their core function is general ledger applications as well as HR, financial planning and supply chain management. And these two stocks, Oracle and SAP, have anchored our cloud and AI monetization exposures. So it was interesting that one of the more meaningful portfolio decisions taken during the fourth quarter of 2023 was to exit SAP while continuing to hold Oracle. What prompted that decision? Yes, it's, it's an interesting case study. When we bought SAP and Oracle a few years ago, the key, you know, the real key reason was we were looking at the adoption of uh, front office software like customer relationship management, CRM, uh, and it was happening, you know, it was driving the growth of companies like Salesforce and, you know, there was rapid adoption of CRM in the cloud, it got to a level of about 60%. Now, in the case of back office software like enterprise resource planning software, ERP, that adoption was lagging. Um, it was still 70% on premise and only 30% had gone to a software as a service, a subscription-based, SaaS subscription-based offering. But the two companies that were leading that, Oracle and SAP, were perceived to be, you know, let's call it mature, lower growth, when in fact they had a much bigger opportunity in front of them. Um, and we thought coming out of COVID, the switch of, you know, businesses would focus a lot more, not on just driving sales from front office, but driving efficiency. And so ERP would get a lot more focus in the transition to from on-premise to SaaS. And there's a lot of benefits for, for the customer in getting, getting software into the cloud because it allows them to, to cut the, the workforce that they have on-premise maintaining data centers. And at the same time, the companies that are supplying the software can take a bigger share of the pie. You know, you end up and you end up with a, a subscription you know, a long duration subscription business, which will ultimately trade on a higher multiple. So that was the core opportunity. And, and it, look, we think it's, it played out. Um, it's been, it played out, it was playing out quite, it's been playing out quite nicely as the perception on SAP and Oracle has, has changed. Uh, revenue growth has accelerated uh, to, you know, let's call it um, five to 10% over the past three years to compared to low mid single digit growth prior prior to that uh, and SAP's stock prices have responded it's up 60% this year alone it's re-rated to almost 30 times earnings um, and we we think whilst we think it can keep growing at around 10% that's we don't think that's an attractive multiple now uh, for that type of growth so we made the decision to sell take profit based on really valuation discipline and uh, as a pragmatic value manager, 
you know, we, pay, we talk about paying a lot about paying the right price uh, relative to a company's business resilience and growth profile. Um, but we also need to focus on the, the exit point. Self-discipline, you know, is important. And as we've exited SAP, we've maintained that position in Oracle. So how does the Oracle thesis and valuation uh, stack up compared to SAP? Yeah, look, we think we're getting, look, number one for Oracle, we're now on around 20 times earnings for what we think is a higher, higher growth, growth profile. Let's call it low double digit growth profile opportunity. Uh, and also more ways of winning. Uh, and, you know, it's that sort of for us means we've got a ultimately a more resilient underlying business. So, look, the three key elements to the Oracle case is, um, as we saw with SAP, this migration of the ERP, but also the database um, t- from on-premise to a, a SaaS offering in the cloud. Um, it is also an opportunity in um, to grow the, let's call it Oracle's cloud infrastructure business, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's the potential, well, it is the fourth player, you know, competing against Amazon's AWS, Microsoft's Azure, and Alphabet's um, Google Cloud Services. In you know in cloud infrastructure, um, so look, and look, you, you also have more focus on the ability of Oracle and and SAP. Let's face it, to to monetize AI within their within their software platform. So look, starting with the cloud migration, um, uh, it's 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 not yeah you know, the the on-premise business shrinks, but the SaaS sales are growing. And um, it takes a little while for the SaaS part to offset the shrinking on-premise, but you put a higher multiple on the SaaS, um, let's call it the SaaS profits. Uh, And look, half of cloud revenue, half of their sales in their um, SaaS offering are actually coming from new customers. So that means Oracle is taking share. Secondly, the transition of Oracle database to the cloud has really only just begun because it was only recently, until recently, um, data, you know, Oracle being so dominant in database, uh, you know, the, obviously they compete against Microsoft, but the database is just such a sticky offering, you know, corporates, uh, it's so mission critical. It's so hard to extract, you know, to switch from an or- you know, Oracle as a provider to a to a to a competitor. Um, and Oracle made a decision that they weren't going to offer the cloud version of the database uh, on top of competitor infrastructure. Now, we think they've made a, a critical decision to reverse that and now offer the Oracle database in the cloud on Microsoft Azure, on Amazon AWS, you know, in the Google Cloud. And that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that means they, you know, they can b- remain one of the best of breed providers of the database as a, ser- as a service, um, take, monetize the software um, and grow faster. And that's the high, you know, that's high margin. So, um, you know, you've got this transition similar to ERP from on-prem to the cloud. Uh, a cloud-based customer is worth three to five times more than an on-premise customer over the life of the contract. 
and uh, and that's you know, you know we think that's 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 a great trend to be exposed to. And can you spend a little bit more time on Oracle Cloud infrastructure? Um, you called out that it can be the fourth largest player behind AWS, Azure, and and Google Cloud. And you also mentioned it's a part of the business that perhaps the market is 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 not really focusing on. So can you take us through that opportunity? Yeah. Look, we we see this business, um, uh, which you know, as all these tech companies love their acronyms, uh, OCI, growing. You know, at sort of plus fifty percent for the next. Per annum for the next few years, uh, thanks partly because it's a it's it's somewhat different architecture uh, than the other competitors, lower latency and with higher bandwidth. Uh, bandwidth you know, refers to how fast data in you know, can transfer within the data center, which is critical for AI workloads. Uh, so OCI's architecture is um, arguably got you know, a point of difference uh, and. Um, Look, we think that you know they are winning some marquee clients like Uber, BMW, Porsche, even Microsoft have announced that they will use OCI for inferencing AI models, powering the Bing uh, conversational search. And on top of that, Oracle has made that uh, made a strategic decision to adopt a uh, a more dispersed footprint, so smaller data centers in multiple regions versus Azure, Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud, uh, which have fewer, bigger data centers. So this is uh, allowing them to win in some, some of those industries that are more sensitive to where data is stored, like healthcare, financial services. Uh, and, um, and look, they are being, they're pricing competitively to win share. Uh, and, uh, as, um, and as, look, but, that's 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 fine, but as the Microsoft example shows, they are also um, there are points of difference. So we don't think it's irrational pricing. We're really you know they're they're pricing to their let's call it their points of differentiation against their larger larger competitors. Uh, now in the last result, um, growth the market was a little bit disappointed that growth in OCI slowed to from seventy percent to to fifty five percent or let's call it over 70% to around 55%. Uh, and look, we think that's somewhat what temporary. Oracle has done a great job securing NVIDIA chips, you know, GPUs, and, um, but it takes time to get the data center up and running. And um, look, they just can't build the capacity fast enough. So we think this is a timing issue. Uh, and uh, we see a lot of potential you know, for, for Oracle to win, you know, to win AI workloads, you know, w- win more than their fair share of AI workloads in the cloud. So in terms of benefiting from the AI revolution, you've, you've just taken us through how Oracle Cloud is, or OCI is, is well positioned from that infrastructure angle. But what is the opportunity for Oracle to monetize AI from the software side? Yeah, that's... That's that's a good question, and it's it's not you know it's not just Oracle. It's really the answer really relates to the 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 advantages of being a, a platform company, um, you know, and in, in terms of software, not not a single feature provider, but a platform provider of software. And we put SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, Salesforce, 
um, and there are others, you know, in that in that category of companies. And it, look, it, it, it's we think number one, it's going to be easier to upsell the benefits, the ability to increase productivity to a a business customer. So B two B monetization will be easier than B two C. Um, you also so as a as a software company as a platform software company you will have by definition relatively unique high quality data uh, which you can use to train models and uh, oracle clearly given its position in enterprise research planning has has that and um, and it has it you know in other parts of the business so uh, that puts them in a strong position we think to not only uh, you know to train models drive high quality inferences to upsell as part of let's call it additional AI features in their existing software and uh, we think the market's being a little bit too narrow in it you know in in terms of the the, the focus on seven you know mega cap tech stocks and in this year, this year will be the year where there'll be a broadening out around um, the, you know, let's call it the, 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 the way the market starts to discount or impute, um, you know, value to a, you know, to a broader range of uh, AI, you know, beneficiaries. So look, bringing it together at the bottom line, Oracle is growing earnings, high single digit to low double digit, priced on 20 times forward earnings. That's cheap relative to quality of the business and its, its growth profile. It's, it's a great pragmatic value exposure to AI. It's priced on a roughly the same market, the same multiple as the market for a much more, which for a higher and more resilient growth profile. Jacob, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for your time today. You've given us a great market summary, as well as some really interesting insights into Oracle. Thanks, Alison. Excellent questions as always, and really looking forward to the year ahead. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.